Good morning. Last Sunday, we spoke about um, the perspective of God on this broken world of ours. We talked about uh, the vantage point, the, the way that God looks at humanity through uh, eyes of redemption, eyes of compassion. And um, we talked about how we might get the vision, the perspective of God as we look at one another. And, and given what we know of Jesus and his mission on earth, and given what we read from John 3, 16 and 17, we're reminded that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And we're reminded that indeed God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And then given our instructions from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, that we no longer regard anyone from a human point of view, but rather we remember that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So it was God's heart initially through Jesus to save the world, and then he drafted us into the same mission, that we would be his ministers of reconciliation. So that colors absolutely how we look at the world. We articulated that in every situation, the eyes of Jesus are looking for what can be redeemed, what can be saved. When sifting through the rubble of our lives or the lives of others around us, we're always asking, what can be salvaged here? What can be redeemed? What can be reconciled? What can be made new by the grace of God? To look at others through that lens is the mark of the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives, right? Because we know we don't naturally look that way. It's the spirit that enables us to see with the eyes of Christ. We more naturally look through the eyes of judgment with the eyes of comparison rather than the eyes of compassion and hope with a view towards redemption. It may just be that we're working so hard at being saints, we think everybody else just ought to work as hard as we are. It, it may just be that we don't want anybody to get a free pass. We don't want the forgiveness of God to be handed out easily. We want everyone to pay their dues, as it were. And so sometimes we're tempted to keep score rather than offering grace and mercy. But we must pray our way to a level of self-surrender that allows us to align our vision with the vision of Jesus, to align our perspectives of humans and humanity with the perspective of Jesus, because he calls us to love, even our enemies. Isn't that what Matthew 5 says? Aren't those the words of Jesus? You have heard it said, but I say to you, love your enemies so that all that is lost or broken or in need of restoration can be saved. So last Sunday, we talked about all of this in the view of persons. But what about nations? I mean, it's one thing to talk about loving people. What is it to talk about loving Nations, And so we have to contend with this story of Jonah. And I'm going to be reading from Jonah 3, 
through the third chapter and into the fourth to try to put this expanded vision of God on the table before us today. This is Jonah 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, no human being, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered in sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Chapter 4. You think everyone's breathing a sigh of relief at this point, right? But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, this is an interesting prayer, isn't it? He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishment. And now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. There's a prayer. And the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Verse 11. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? It's sort of an emotional roller coaster through here, isn't it? Up and down and back and forth. What do we know about Nineveh? So Nineveh is an Assyrian city, a sometimes capital of Assyria. It's the second, well, it is the largest city in the world in the mid-600s B.C. In 722, 720 B.C., Assyria lays waste to the northern kingdom of Israel. The height of the power of the Assyrian uh, empire is from the mid-700s B.C. to about 612, when civil war begins to sap their strength. It isn't long before the Babylonians and then the Medes and the Persians work their way through this area. But in the 722 invasion, the 10 tribes of northern Israel are crushed and some citizens are deported. In 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Israel is crushed by Babylon and many citizens are deported. 
And we don't know exactly when the letter of Jonah is written. We don't know when this prophecy is declared. Is Jonah written when Assyria is at the height of her power? When Nineveh as a a leading city would be the focus of the threat to Israel? Or is Jonah written after Nineveh's glory has faded and they are no longer a military threat to Israel or to anyone? If this was written after the exile in the early 500s BC, maybe this is a, a prophecy addressed to those about those who have harmed us in the past and no longer a threat to us. But how long is Israel's memory? How long do you hold a grudge in hindsight against folks who conquered you? I think the message feels a little bit differently depending on when it's written. If it's written after the exile, this letter might hit Israel when they are struggling with the influence of outside religions in Israel. The post-exile period of Israel is a time of uncertainty, of vulnerability, an attempt to restore security to Israel. The walls are being rebuilt. The nation is inward focused. And a message like Jonah's might not be too well accepted. The message that others matter to God as well. If the message is written during the exile, between the time the northern kingdom perishes, but before the southern kingdom perishes, it might be that Israel is hearing a message of forgiveness. God loves the people who destroyed your relatives up north. That's an odd message. I mean, that would be an odd and curious thing to hear from the Lord. But maybe this message comes at a time even before Israel, the northern kingdom, is destroyed. Maybe this story comes at a time when Assyria is powerful and threatening Israel, and God is telling Israel to love even those who threaten us. It may be that regardless of when Jonah is written, all of the above are still true. That God wants us to love those who injured us in the past, those who are injuring us now, those who are a threat to us, that God's love for all people and the world stretches past all of that. That's a hard message to swallow, isn't it? I mean, can you put yourself in the shoes of the Israelis who are hearing this prophecy for the first time? I mean, you, you know how hard the message is because you know from the story that when Jonah hears this message from the Lord, the calling is so repugnant to him, so socially unpalatable, so repulsive to him that he runs as fast as he can in the opposite direction away from Nineveh. Have you ever been in a position where God has asked you for something that none of your friends would accept or understand or that even you don't want to accept or understand? Have you ever been instructed by God to do something that might make you an embarrassment to your family? You know, go, go befriend this person. I remember the story while we were living in New Hampshire of a pastor in Concord who felt deeply impressed by God to give housing to an ex-felon who had been released from prison, who had murdered someone in the community. And 
he didn't particularly like that message from God, and he candidly admitted his struggle with that, but felt like it was exactly what God was calling him to do in compassion to demonstrate the redemptive grace of God to this man who was a murderer, who had confessed Christ in prison, was redeemed, but the memory of the community was long, and 20 years after the murder was not long enough for them to forget. Have you ever been in a place like that where the thing that God called you to do is distressing? This is like that. This story is like that. Nineveh is not a popular destination for Jewish travelers. And for all the reasons mentioned here, it was either a threat or a current enemy or a hated historical oppressor. And trouble, as you know, ensued for Jonah when he tries to run away from this calling of God. But by the third chapter of Jonah, where we're reading today, Jonah needs a do-over so that he can obey the voice of God. And so Jonah actually goes to Nineveh. He starts preaching the message that God has instructed him to preach. Notice the text says he preaches one day in, right? The city's a three-day walk across, but he preaches one day in, and the message is so powerful and so well-received that it runs before him and reaches the king. And you don't have any evidence in the story that any additional preaching was needed. Like he preached and there was a response. I, I wish I could preach like that, that I could preach and maybe only after the introduction I could just stop and the message, the point would already have been made and the spirit would move. And it wasn't Jonah's preaching, right? This was the anointing of the message of God to these people, right? This was the work of the Holy Spirit issuing forth the proclamation of God that judgment was at hand and the people responded. Nineveh responds from the lowest to the greatest. They all respond in repentance. Would that America would follow suit. Nineveh responds. And the twist in the story is now Jonah is mad. Jonah's angry. Nineveh repents. God relents. Jonah is torqued. And the Lord says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Shouldn't I be concerned about Nineveh and the 120,000 people there who have no moral compass, who don't know right from wrong, who are clueless? These folks who, are, who do evil continually, who have violence in their hands? We know the Assyrian Empire was a violent thing. The people have violence in their hands. Shouldn't I be concerned to that? You know, it all, it all boils down to this again. It all boils down to John 3, 16. God so loved this world. God so loved this world. Not just us, not just Americans, not just Israelis. God so loved the world, Ninevites included. And if our understanding of the world doesn't reflect the heart of God in this area, we are out of step with God and we'll find ourselves in step with Jonah. Jonah is the person in the story we do not want to be like, right? Even though he has this brief moment of obedience, he first runs from God, and then when God in compassion relents, he's mad at God. 
because he doesn't have the perspective of the Father. He doesn't have the perspective of Jesus. He doesn't have the perspective of the Holy Spirit who so loved the world that they were willing to do anything that the world might be reconciled to them. God loved the world. The heart of God ought to shape how we think about the world. And if we're having trouble loving the Ninevites this morning, or whatever other nationality or ethnicity or political division or adversary or any category of persons, then we are living beneath the high calling of God in our life. And we are not seeing the world through the compassionate, gracious, and loving eyes of the God that we serve. This God that we love is the God who sends Jonah to Nineveh and is the one that even seems concerned about the cows, right? I mean, that's all here. There's, there's livestock to be concerned about here. This worldview of God this heart of God for everyone he created ought to impact our compassion, our mission work, our politics, our immigration policies, everything that we deal with in the way we live together locally, nationally, and internationally. We must be informed by the perspective of Jesus. Otherwise, how on earth are we going to do our job, right? How can we do our job? Paul tells us that straight up in 2 Corinthians, Corinthians 5. We don't look at anyone through a human point of view anymore. We have been commissioned as ambassadors of reconciliation. And we have been handed the ministry of reconciliation. It's as though God was making his appeal to the world through us, Paul says. And so we ought to be willing to go to the lengths that Jesus went for the salvation of the world. That's what Paul's telling us here. Again, this only happens when we are willing to submit ourselves to the will of the Holy Spirit and ask for his transforming work in our heart. Because humanly, we just always default to judgment. We really do. We default to comparisons, judgment, what in our opinion we think is right. But this grace of Jesus, this compassion of Jesus is, that, is scandalous at some level. It is so far-reaching, so all-encompassing. His mercy is beyond our understanding. And when Nineveh repents, he relents. And when we turn to God, when anyone on the planet turns to God, come on in, he says. Join the work of the kingdom of God. Be a part of my family. Enter into your reward. The, the compassion and grace of God is overwhelming. And our hearts must be aligned with that graciousness and compassion. And it's not our work if it happens. It's our obedience to the work of the Holy Spirit and Him transforming us and changing us so that we can be salt 
and light in the world that's around us. Let me pray with you this morning. Gracious Jesus, we confess that we find judgment and comparison easier than acceptance and grace. Forgive us for that. Give us hearts of compassion for the world. May our hearts break with the things that break your heart. Help us to embrace our mission as ambassadors of reconciliation so that in the ways that you love the world, we also can love the world. We're not experts at doing that. And even, Lord, for those of us who have had our hearts transformed by your Spirit so that we are loving others, we suspect there are ways we can do a better job at that. And so we ask, Spirit, that you would be a creative agent in our souls and show us our way forward so that we can, with integrity, be your ambassadors and ministers of reconciliation according to the calling that you have placed on our lives. Help us to that end, we pray. Amen. And now may the God of peace guard your hearts. And may he equip you with every good thing for doing his will. To his glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.